Good to be with you all again. My name is Ryan Moore, one of the pastors on staff here. And uh, we've been in the book of 2 Corinthians over the past six or seven weeks now. And we're taking a little bit of a jump. Last week we finished um, chapter 3 or 4. four, And now we're going to jump to chapter 6. And then for Palm Sunday next week, we will be coming back to chapter 5. And then for Easter, chapter 5, the last part of chapter 5. So... If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of 2 Corinthians and to chapter 6. We'll be starting in verse 3 and looking at verses 3 to 13. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word found in the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. By truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Verse 8. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Verse 11 We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, and I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, all of us come in here expecting something, and even if that is nothing, That is still something, and we pray for your spirit to meet us in those places, and we pray that you would uh, soften our hearts. Uh, We pray that you would open our eyes and ears that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. Um, Would you do this for your glory alone? We pray this again in your son's name. Amen. In the book, A Voyage for Mad Men by Peter Nichols, He chronicles the first ever circumnavigation of the globe by sailboat. This is uh, something that people wanted to to see happen. It was the next thing um, in sailing. And so in 1968, nine men, madmen, as the title of the book goes, uh, volunteered to do this. Okay. And um, uh, they, they take, it's about 280 days is what the average length it took for them to go about 29,000 miles in a boat by themselves, nonstop. You never get to touch land. You can't do it with anybody else. This was the goal. Okay. Um, one, uh, one participant that I want to share with you, his name was Che Blythe, decided to do this, decided to enter this race, having never sailed before in his life. All right, so I just want you to think about that for a second. Um, We're not just kind of going across the bay. We're going to sail out of Great Britain, and we're just going to go around the world. And it's going to take you 280 days. It's going to take you in some of the worst conditions that are on this earth. Uh, Most people die doing this. And this guy decides to jump in this race, having never sailed a boat in his life. Well, needless to say, 
he did not win the race. However, he did make it further than anyone expected. Given the boat that he chose, which would have been comparable to trying to fly around the world in a kite. You can read about that later. But after his first real experience with the elements, after he, he, he sailed into this gale, uh, which is a, a storm at sea that produces at least 60 to 70 mile an hour winds, his boat gets beaten up and his self-steering mechanism breaks and it's just all coming down on him. And if you aren't really sure what that is, that the self-steering mechanism is really important in a, in a race like this, especially in a storm, because normally in a storm you want to hunker into that boat and I uh, want to be away from the elements, but while at the same time you're doing that, you don't have to be up, you know, steering the boat. It can kind of go its course. But this storm just, just did his boat in. And so there he is, like a sitting duck, uh, entering. As he, he's actually rounded the Cape of Good Hope at, the, uh, at South Africa, entering into the southern, southern Ocean where the biggest waves are. And he's sitting there as a sitting duck with nothing... <laughs> Nothing to do. And so this is what he writes in his journal, and I find this somewhat humorous. And I hope you do too. So I lowered the sails. And once I had lowered them, there was nothing more I could do except pray. So I prayed. And between times, I turned to one of my sailing manuals to see what advice it contained for me. It was like being in hell with instructions, he concludes. Well, as we continue along in uh, this book, 2 Corinthians, we are looking at how the cross shapes our crisis. Uh, that is sort of our theme here. And this morning, I want to spend some time focusing on the suffering part, on the actual crisis part. Um, and this can mean a lot of different things for a lot of people. But I want to shape it, in, in, as you see it in your bulletin, as the pattern of the cross in our lives, which really is suffering. More on that in just a minute. For many of us, though, as we come in here, and, and, and some of us, you know, more so than others, we don't have to be entering into the Southern Ocean, right, uh, with conditions, uh, some of the worst conditions in, in the world. We don't have to be entering into that ocean in the midst of a storm to feel like we are in hell with instructions. Crisis, suffering, hardship in many ways is the air that, that we breathe. Again, some more than others to varying degrees, of course. Which is what makes a topic like this so difficult because, you know, suffering really is subjective. And here's what I mean by that. No one would put the suffering of a 16-year-old who had just broken up with his or his girlfriend or her boyfriend. No one would put that type of suffering above someone who is suffering through the loss of a loved one who they just lost to cancer. You wouldn't do that. But how could you tell each that their pain, that their suffering, that their personal crisis, if you will, wasn't real? You can't. Because it's very real to those people in very different ways. It's subjective. But in those moments, those not experiencing the pain, the hardship, and the suffering, you know, those on the outside looking in, what do, you, what do we want to do, right? We just want to help. We want to do something that would sort of alleviate this suffering. We want to get in there and we want to fix it. And maybe we offer some people advice. Maybe some of us go to Scripture and we offer people Scripture. And those are good things to do. But you know this just as well as I know this, that in the midst of deep suffering, sometimes offering that Scripture... That advice can be like being in hell with instructions all over again. So what do we do? Both those in the midst of hardship and suffering and those wanting to help. What do we do? What does Paul have for us here? Because what all of us want to do and what really everybody on the outside is telling you to do is just escape it. We want to get out of it. 
right? We, we want to we be somewhere else and escape is often the best medicine. But what if, what if what was needed in the midst of our suffering wasn't something to do, but it was something to see? What if what we needed most in the midst of our crisis, whatever that would look like, isn't some plan, but it's a vision. It's something to capture our imaginations in order, maybe not necessarily to pull us out of it, but to know that something is happening very powerful and very helpful in the midst of my suffering because of my suffering. What if I could see that my suffering was actually a living metaphor to those around me of the love of Jesus? A love that endures all things. This is what I want to talk about this morning. And to get at this, I want to look at suffering as Paul continues to do in this letter here in verses 3 to 13. And how it gives us a picture of how to view ourselves in the midst of these crises, crises, in the midst of suffering, that is a real picture of Jesus' suffering love for you, for others, and for the world, and ultimately how that picture, which is the pattern of the cross, stirs our imaginations and gives us hope. Gives us hope, okay? So you see there on your outline, a little bit changed, nothing new there. Uh, first, Paul's picture in, uh, to the Corinthians, the, the picture of an apostle is what's on your outline. I want to talk about the frame of that picture. And then I want to look at two things that will help us shape or interpret um, these pictures and, and even our, our, our pictures as well. Okay? So let's look at that first one. Paul's picture to the Corinthians or the picture of an apostle's life. If you've ever seen the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks... Um, this was a movie that came out several years ago about a FedEx pilot who was uh, on business over Christmas, flying somewhere over the Pacific. And the plane goes down, and everybody thinks everybody there died, and, uh, but, but Tom Hanks' character survives, and he makes it to shore. And so the whole movie is about him surviving on this island for four years before he's rescued, and then what happens to life once he rejoins society. But what the critics always said about this movie when it came out, and you might have said the same thing, which is what I want to draw your attention to, is that when people went and watched this movie, what people talked about the most were the long sections of no dialogue within the movie, were the long sections of silence. And it was kind of awkward at first because we weren't really ready for that. There's one scene where it goes about eight or nine minutes with nothing. And you're simply watching Tom Hanks try to open a coconut. You're trying to watch him make fire, right? And, of course, there's that weird, lovable scene where he just creates this person out of a Wilson volleyball. And he talks to it. And, he, and you know, that's what he does, right? Um, but, but the method of that, you know, giving us these pictures of, of silence help us get into what it would be like to be alone, to be by yourself the hardships, uh, the sorrow, the challenges of going without talking to anybody. What would that actually be like? And, and to, to shoot it like that really allows us to enter into that life. The picture of this person's life who is on this island by himself. Well, verses 4 to 7 really read like this to us. At least I believe this is what Paul wants them to read like to us, even though we get to skip these lists. That Paul is offering a picture of his life to us. And this picture begins with afflictions, hardships, 
calamities. And what he's, de- what he's describing here are all sufferings that he has experienced as a result of bringing God's message into complicated, hostile places. Here's the vision. Paul has to go into Gentiles or non-Jewish places, parts of the world, bring a message that is not popular by any means, a foreign and crazy sounding message at that. And when it conflicts with people's worldviews, <clears throat> when it conflicts with what they, <clears throat> you know, what they think about themselves, one that even conflicts with their well-being and how they survive. And so you begin to go in and challenge somebody's, you know, means of survival, you're going to experience and understand affliction and calamity very well, very soon. It'd be like Paul bringing the gospel message uh, into some places uh, that, that he does throughout the New Testament would be sort of like entering Nazi Germany in the late 1930s, just sort of kind of showing up saying, what's with all these banners, guys? Let's, bring that, let's, let's go ahead and end this party here and you know, let's just go on home, right? Like, that's not going to end well. And those who did have the courage then to do that, we all know that most of them ended up dying. These are hostile places. This is the picture he wants you to have of where he is going and what he is doing. And, the, and he, he even tells us in the previous letter, he can't not go in these places and not preach the gospel. You know, back in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, he says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And, and this is, you know, it's not a, a drive-by media type of way, you know, where you just kind of get to say your message and leave. Because Paul actually lives in these places, and that makes matters ten times worse. That you've created all these disturbances in one place, and now it's not like you can go home somewhere and be away from this. You live there. This is the picture he wants you to have. Well, what else? Oh, there's the regular beatings and the imprisonments that he mentions that come along with such work. We read about these in all of his letters, so much so that we don't think much of it. It is an assumed part of the job. If you're going to go into places with messages that uh, really, um, you know, lack a better word, conflicts with other kings and gods, then expect to pay for it. Expect to pay for it. And Paul did on numerous occasions. And along with the imprisonments and riots, we don't read much of Paul's journey where those things didn't happen as a result of his life. Then he continues again with the mundane hardships there. The labor, you know, working hard would be another way of putting that. And what he means by this is are the travelings. I mean, this guy had to walk everywhere he went. And where did he go? He went hundreds and hundreds of miles. And he didn't have the privilege of going hundreds of miles in, in, in a place where it was safe, so to speak. To go from one city to the other. You know, this is the place where walls define security. You live inside the walls, you're okay. You live outside the walls, you're on your own. And so Paul would hit the trail going from city to city to country to country on places that threaten his livelihood at every given step. Thieves waiting not just to take what he has, but possibly to kill him in the process because who would know? This is his life. These are his hardships. And of course, there are the sleepless nights, possibly because somebody's looking for him, but more than likely because he had a second job. He was a tent maker. So if he wasn't preaching in the synagogues, it wasn't like he got this sort of cushy pastor life where he got to sit up and eat and drink and be merry. He had to go back and make these tents. He had to go back and engage that type of of world because that's how he made his survival. That's how he ate. And of course, he mentions there the hunger too. You know, we, we know that it wasn't uncommon for people in that day to go three or four days without eating. That's unheard of in our culture. Try going three or four hours and people get 
frustrated, to say the least. Right? This is the picture that Paul is painting about his life. And of course, Paul goes on and he does all of this, he says, in purity. And, and that's, not, that's not a word for perfection. That's a word for integrity. It's a word for integrity. I think this is harder than the beatings, if you ask me. Because at every turn, Paul, the face of the, of the church, the messenger of God himself, has to go into these crowds, has to go into these places, not just with knowledge and intelligence, but has to go in there with patience, with kindness, which, of course, he attributes as being fruits of the Spirit. But kindness is something that doesn't necessarily move us the way that it would move readers in Paul's day, which is worth noting that kindness wasn't the virtue that it was or that it is today. You know, today, whether you're in the South or in Texas, you would hold the door open for people and you wouldn't be caught not doing that if you were walking through a door and people were passing. Pleasantries, like how is your day going, right? Like those are things that are virtuous in our culture. But for Paul in his day, kindness was a sign of weakness. You didn't look after anybody else but yourself. Maybe you showed kindness to your family. Maybe you showed kindness to um, those you love. But anybody outside of that, wouldn't. not only would they not expect it, but they wouldn't look at it as brave, as strength. And so why this is helpful is that as we begin to see this picture that Paul is painting, so to speak, of his life, there are those looking at this and saying, Paul... I don't understand this. Why are you doing this? Why are you living like this? This picture doesn't make sense. And you know what? It doesn't. It doesn't. Our lens today, this, we, love, we, we love Paul. We get it. But you've got to enter into the mindset of who he's writing to. This doesn't make sense. Without some interpretation of what this is, this is foolishness, Paul. In the same way, I might add that the cross of Jesus is also foolishness to those that it doesn't make sense to. That it too needs its own interpretation, if you will. But the reality is, is this is how many of us see our own lives too. Our own lives in the midst of our own suffering and hardships. Nothing more than a painting on the wall that doesn't make sense. Why, God? Why are you doing this to me? We might cry out, especially when we join in the game of comparisons, which is the game that all of us play at some level. We say to ourselves, my life doesn't look as happy or as well put together as other people's lives seem to be. God, why have you made all these things happen for him? And it just doesn't seem like it's really working for me. <clears throat> why does he get the girl, right? I wonder if Paul ever compared himself to others. You know, they don't just they don't go to jail like I do. What's that about? I don't know. Comparing our perception of what the picture of our lives looks like is a huge deal for us in our culture and society. So much is wrapped up in that picture <clears throat> and the need for it to be perfect. <clears throat> and the need for it to make sense. And really, when we discover in the comparison game of life, what we discover is that, they, that we are allowing someone else's perfect life, so-called perfect life, to tell us and to interpret our own lives for us. What it is that we're supposed to be living like. How much value should be attached to our lives. And all of this, all of this is an illusion. 
But we keep comparing our life and all its mess with someone else's perceived perfect life. And we fall further and further into despair, anxiety, and depression. And so this begs the question, who gets to, who gets to have the say as to what the picture of your life looks like? Is it good or is it bad? Who gets to interpret this for you? And all of its sufferings and hardships. And before somebody even begins to speak for Paul, he jumps in there and he allows us to know who interprets his life for him. Because see, unless there's a frame there, unless there's someone else telling you that this is good, we'll keep looking at other people to define that for us. And this gets to my second point. What's the frame here? What Paul wants others to see in his life through his suffering, how he wants the people in Corinth to interpret his suffering is to see not him, but to see the suffering woes of Jesus for them on the cross. Paul frames this picture, his suffering and hardship, I'll say it again, in the sacrificial love of Jesus. What he wants you to see, what he, look, what, what, what he wants you to see when you look at his life, and you've got to get this, is not failure. It's not loss, even though it might not make sense. He wants you to see the sacrificial love, excuse me, of God coming to you from Jesus on the cross. Can you open your hearts to see it? Can you open your eyes to see this? That's what Paul might be asking. I came home one day earlier this week, and this has become a very pleasant thing for me. This is great. Uh, I come home and my, our third child, Virginia, has taken up one of the pastimes that the older girls uh, have been doing for a while. And that's, that's drawing pictures. That's coloring. And so um, Virginia runs up and she's excited to tell me about what it is that she just has been coloring for me, what she just drew for me. And, you know, our, our older girls, we're getting really good at faces. We're getting really good at things that resemble people. Um, so Virginia comes up and she's got this picture and, and I look at it and, you know, if you're just looking at it, it's just a bunch of scribbly lines of shades of color. So there might be some red here, a blue here, green here and yellow here and whatever. And of course I say, this is beautiful. Never seen anything like this before. Virginia, you did so well. Um, in a little bit, uh, you know, more enthusiastic voice, but before I could really begin to ask her the question, what is it? Um, she, of course, wants to tell me. She, of course, wants to yeah, let me know immediately. And so here's what she says. She, she takes the picture. She says, that's you, that's mommy, that's May, that's Ann Hard, and that's me. And that's Bess over there um, is, is how she interprets that picture. So a family photo. Okay, yes, yes. A family portrait. I get it. Beautiful. Why do I mention that? When Virginia first handed me her drawing... Right? When Virginia first brought that to me, I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. I couldn't see the family portrait that she had drawn. All I saw was a mess. Glad she's not in here. <laughs> Until she framed it for me. Until she framed it for me in the way that only a three-year-old can. And Paul is doing the same thing here. How? Paul has just painted this wonderful picture. This confusing picture. But it's wonderful of his life. And he frames it in the enduring love of Christ. 
Look at verse 4 there. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. By great endurance. This this word is extremely important. This is the word that houses or frames everything that Paul has just mentioned that describes his own life that we just looked at. But what's just as important about this word is where it actually comes from. It means patient waiting, but he's pulling this from 1 Corinthians 13, what Darwin touched on last week. And if we could just go back there for a second, most of y'all recognize 1 Corinthians 13 as being that wonderful chapter on love, right? And most of us are probably so familiar with hearing this at weddings. And we get there in the weddings and we see these two adorable people that we love and that love each other. And, and the ceremony is going and oh, somebody's about to read 1 Corinthians 13. Let's listen up. This will be good. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And we think, that's them. They're going to be so great. <laughs> Love bears all, believes all, hopes all, endures all. That's 1 Corinthians 13. And when we hear this, we hear it especially read at weddings, though, it sounds so good. But I'm going to be the first, maybe to be honest, it just, it really doesn't make sense. Love is, if you listen to it by itself, love is patient. Love is kind. Uh, Not envious. Uh, I get that. Okay. Not resentful. I guess. Who? Who's picturing this for us? My wife might be saying, yeah, yeah, I bet you don't know what love is patient means. Right. Who's picturing this for us? Who is interpreting? Who is framing it, if you will? See, without the context here, we are left to interpret love in any way that we want to. And that's the beauty of that chapter at weddings is it just allows us to put any type of window dressing around it that we want to. But Paul actually has something in mind here that's extremely important to understanding our text in chapter six of Second Corinthians. He has a frame, if you will, for this picture it says, this is what you're looking at. You're, you're looking at the love of Jesus in his most desperate moment for you on the cross. And when we hear that frame, when we hear that frame that way, we can't, we can't listen to 1 Corinthians 13 in, in any other different way. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 13, picture of Jesus on the cross. Let's go back through this. Love is patient and kind. Oh. Oh. Jesus took it, though he didn't deserve it. For me, he never complained. Love does not envy or boast. It does not insist on its own way. Do we not think that Jesus wanted to be somewhere else? We know this in the garden. Father, take this cup away from me. If there is any other way. But only if it is your will. What boasting is there to do upon a cross? Love is not arrogant or rude. It is not irritable or resentful. And if I'm honest, this is the hardest for me to get. Paul, you mean to say that in all of Jesus wrongfully, all that he wrongfully endured, there wasn't one moment of irritability or resentment? No. No. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And then thinking of the shame and sin and wrath that Jesus was taking on at this moment, Paul finishes with, love bears all. All right? It endures, and there's that word, endurance. 
You'll never read chapter 13 the same again once you see it framed in that light. And Paul, let's come back here. Paul takes this thread, if you will, from chapter 13 that love endures. And he begins to weave it around, framing the picture of his own life that he just spilled out for us. When you are seeing the hardships, the imprisonments, the beatings, the sleepless nights, I want you, 1 Corinthians, or or people in Corinth, to see, not me, but to see the sacrificial love of Jesus for you. And friends, if that is true for Paul, it is also true for you and for me in the midst of our very own suffering, in the midst of our very own personal crises. In the midst of hardships that nobody else will ever know about. No longer are we in hell with instructions. We are actually in hell now with a vision. With something to look at. With something to see. A vision of truth, of reality, to look at that has the power to pull us out of ourselves and to give us hope. And even more amazing than that, a vision that even in the midst of our suffering allows us to pour into other people's lives. Just as Paul is doing for his people in in, in the church in Corinth, and as Jesus ultimately has done for us, as he says and cries out, it is finished. The question remains for Paul, though, to his reader. And I would say this question comes to us as well, is can you see it in the midst of your suffering? How or who are you allowing to interpret those sufferings? Your hardships in life. Can you see the beauties of your own suffering and hardship? Can you see how it shows the world the love of Jesus for them? And does that not bring you joy in the midst of that? Can you see how a portrait of weakness and suffering is the most beautiful family portrait of all? And that all depends on who gets to frame your crisis, though, doesn't it? Paul wants his suffering in life to show others the enduring love of Christ. And that for him is what makes his suffering possible. This gives us new meaning to his phrase, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. To live is Christ, to live is suffering. Well, how do we do this? I don't try to land this plane here. How do do we go about doing this? this? I think I'm kind of following you, Ryan. I think I kind of get this picture thing you're talking about. And I see that you're trying to say that my sufferings somehow show people Jesus. Okay, well, how do we do this? And I really want to leave you with two things. Uh, requires an enormous amount of imagination. And it requires us to worship. We are constantly living in and out of two different worlds. There are those, the world that is the perception of what life is, the, the perception of, of, of the world and the way things are, and then there's God's reality. And many of us, at times of struggle, we t- many of us struggle, excuse me, to remember what's really true about us as believers, as heirs, as children of God. And especially in times of suffering and hardship, it's even more difficult to remember which world we're a part of. Which reality is true? Is it the way that the world interprets our lives or is it the way that God interprets our lives? And Paul knows this, and this is how he finishes this section listing off all of these paradoxes that are so wonderful. You know, to the world, 
and even to some in Corinth, Paul's saying, look, I'm not known. I'm a nobody. But to God, I'm known. That's the, that's the divine reality. To some, I'm, I'm nobody. To others, I'm well known. <clears throat> to some, I'm dying. But in God's economy, behold, we live because of the resurrection. To some, they look at me in my life with pity, but I rejoice. Again, the world's perception, the world's point of view. But then there's God's point of view, his reality. To some, I'm poor, certainly financially, yet spiritually I'm rich, having nothing but possessing everything. Certainly Paul is tapping into the adoption that he has in God the Father. Two different realities here, and the battle for us is remembering, goodness gracious, what's really true about us. Not just as fact or data so that we can recite this, although that's important, but so that we begin to retain it in a way that we digest it enough so that we actually begin to see it. And this this comes full circle for us that in the midst of our suffering, we don't need advice. We need something to see. Something beautiful to pull us out of this. And so we begin to see that who we are in Christ, no matter the circumstances, we are known and we are not left alone. Like this is life for us. This is not dying or death. This is not the end of it. We are adopted sons and daughters. We are not left abandoned. And the worst thing, the worst thing that could happen to any of us in the midst of our sufferings, according to Paul, the worst thing is that we could reflect the loving, unending, gracious love of Jesus for people. And the way that we'll do this is through our imagination and through worship. What a briefly... Christians have to be able to see things that are real, that are true, but that aren't here yet. For example, nothing engages our imagination more than the resurrection. Y'all believe in it? You have to. Do you ever sit and think about what that's going to be like? Do you ever let your mind wander and say, what is it going to be like to have new self To come into this place where there isn't any pain or suffering. It's all catching up with me. Do you ever let yourself just try to think about that? Because Paul tells us that the resurrection of Jesus is the start of God ushering in his new kingdom. In other words, it's already started. If we can't learn to see this, if we can't learn to see the promises and the things that God has for us in times that are well and times that are, are, are joyful for, for us, we're not going to see them in times of sorrow. But how do we engage that imagination? <clears throat> we engage it through worship. What you're doing this morning is shaping your imagination, whether you want it to or not. When we offer prayers, when we do confession, when we sing hymns, When we come to this table, your imagination is being shaped to enter into a reality more true than anything you've ever experienced this week. And it's shaping that imagination so that you don't believe the perception of what your life really is. That the world would tell you, which is failure and loss. Which you begin to believe and enter into and have to come back to the reality of how God sees you. And especially how he sees your suffering. If imagination enables us to see... Realities that aren't fully here yet. It's worship that strengthens that eye in good times and in bad.
This is the importance, for example, of belonging to a church, of belonging to a body of people that are regularly worshiping together. Because you have to keep feeding that imagination. And this is the, this is the hang up. Giving yourself new pictures of where we are going, of God's enduring love for you. I wish it were as simple to quote John three sixteen for you and then we would never have to meet again. But the chances are you're going to forget it. Or the chances are it's going to lose its luster. Worship, Sunday morning, other, other components of God's people and, and his church and his kingdom are all shaping your imagination of what is true. So let me close then with both an illustration of this. But one that I think serves as a picture for us to take with us this morning. If I can return to a voyage for Mad Men, that first circumnavigation of the globe. Um, as I mentioned, this happened in 1968. And so uh, this, you know, this took people 280 days to, to get around. And the race continues today. It's called the Vendy Globe. And with our technology, people do this race in about 70 days. It's pretty fascinating. You can watch it live feed. Um, but in 1968, they didn't have that. And as I read from you, one, one sailor, one, one guy didn't even know how to sail. But I, I want to tap into one of the things that, that you hear about these nine people, all of them, as they set out. That all of them that made it as far as 150 or so days, somewhere in there, every single one of them begins to talk about this depression that they enter into. Because it's a depression of being alone. Listen, you're out at sea. There's nobody there to talk to. There's nobody there to listen to, right? That whole Wilson bit from Castaway, that's a real thing, you know? And so they begin to talk to and make friends with the sail. That's what they do. But all of them talk about this depression and all of them talk about the same thing that they had to do in order to get out of it. And you know what they had to do? They had to imagine something that was real that was not there yet. And for all of them, it was either a loved one. For one sailor, it was his five-year-old that he remembers leaving at the dock, waving by as he left months and months and months ago. And he had to imagine the reality of getting out of this ship, getting, get, making this race, making it home alive so that one day he could be with her again. For others, it's a spouse. For others, it's some family member, something, something they love. But they all had to imagine it. They all had to imagine something that wasn't there, but that would be. That was their picture. That's what got them out of their crisis. The point of this is not for you to create a picture of someone you know, close to you that you love. What I love about this story, and the reason I tell you, is because it gives us great insight into the cross. How so? It gives us great insight into what kept Jesus hanging there. That if he's going to be able to do that with patience, with kindness, without being arrogant or resentful. If he was able to hang there while bearing and enduring the shame and the suffering that it was. He had to imagine something that was true for that moment that was not yet a reality. He had to believe in something, as Paul says, believe in something uh, that, that was far greater than any of the suffering that he was thinking about. He had to hope in a reality again that wasn't true yet. And do you know what he was believing in? Do you know what he was looking at? Paul tells us in this gospel in chapter 13, he was thinking of you. That was his picture. That is what sustained him in his hardest hour. 
Paul tells us that he loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end. Friends, that is your picture to take with you this morning. In the midst of your suffering and crisis, to know that you are the object of somebody else's hope and desire in the midst of their own crisis, and that us too, in the same way as we bear one another's burdens, we show the suffering love of Jesus for others in a way that the world will never understand. But that as we look to Jesus and we ask the cross to interpret this for us, we know that this is love. We know that we can get through this. This is your picture for today. That's the picture Paul wants the church in Corinth to see through his suffering about themselves. And it's the picture that we must see also in the midst of our suffering. Would its beauties then lead us to imagine great things about who Jesus is? And would it lead us to shape our lives and our worship of him? And as Paul leaves leaves here in verse 13, would that picture be something that would cause you to open wide your hearts to him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sustaining a dry mouth this morning. I pray that you would not allow your words to fall on deaf ears, that you would keep the evil one at bay as seeds fall onto hard concrete or the path and not let the birds come take them away. But would you let those seeds rest in fruit, fruit, uh, healthy soil to produce a fruit for us as we leave here. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.